All right. Um, so good afternoon, everyone. I hope you're having a good conference. Uh, my name is Bert Lee, and I have the pleasure of speaking to you this afternoon about supporting uh, global critical care in resource variable settings through medical education. I'm just realizing it's a very long title, so my apologies. Um, I um, want to uh, just maybe start by asking uh, who you are. Uh, I guess uh, if you don't mind, uh, raise your hand if you're actually already working overseas in healthcare setting. Anyone here? Okay. Uh, where do you work, sir? If you're able to say. Honduras. Honduras. Okay. And then what type of work do you do there? Fantastic. All right. And then, uh, and then how many of you are um, seeing uh, critically ill patients, uh, ICU, emergency room, etc.? So about, maybe about half of you there, and, and that's in the U.S. setting, I'm assuming, then? Okay. And, and any of you in training uh, as medical students, residents, fellows? Okay. And what are you all training in? What kind of fields? We're M1s. You're M1s. Okay. So you're, you're in training, yes. <laughs> Where do you go to medical school? University of Tennessee Health Sciences. Fantastic. Okay. Is that true for all three of you there? Okay, great. Right. And then how about, uh, there's some other trainees here? Pharmacy. Pharmacy, great. And anybody else? Yeah. Emergency medicine. Emergency medicine. And, uh, and where are you training at? Detroit. Detroit, fantastic. Yeah. Family medicine. Family medicine. Okay. And then? <laughs> great. Well, well, thank you for coming. Um, so... I'm going to uh, start with my brief story so that you know who I am. Um, I uh, um, started uh, uh, back in uh, early 2000 uh, at a hospital called uh, uh, MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was on faculty at Georgetown University. And, uh, and I taught a whole bunch of courses uh, there and subsequently so they include things like uh, your medical school physiology course, where I was a course director. I ran ICU clerkships. Uh, I also taught a class that's my favorite class called Scientific Literacy and Numeracy. Uh, I was a program director for Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship uh, and taught a bunch of other subjects along those lines. And all of that is to say you know, uh, most of my career has been in, uh, in medical education. Um, and then in, uh, in 2010, uh, I, I was uh, allowed to go on a one-year sabbatical. So we actually moved uh, for a year to, uh, to Kenya uh, with my family. And our children at the time were uh, 12 and uh, 14, uh, and we uh, left as a family. Uh, that one year actually turned into six years, because if you are doing you know, work overseas, you might know uh, that uh, it takes a long time to get things done, and what seems like it'd be very quick and easy ends up taking a lot more time. So we actually decided to stay uh, and to continue our work. Uh, in addition, I think actually our kids really loved their time in Kenya, and they actually didn't want to come back. They would actually rather continue. So it was a real, it was a real blessing for us, and we ended up staying to do the work that, uh, that we're going to tell you about. Um, so the hospital where I was at is, uh, is Kajabi uh, Medical Center in Kenya. Uh, I suspect there has to be somebody in this audience who has worked there or volunteered there. Anybody? Okay. What did you do at Kajabi? 
Great, fantastic. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. So, um, so um, yeah, so so we were there in, uh, in Kajabi, and the intensive care unit, if you're curious, is on the second floor of this building here. Um, and then uh, when the younger of our two kids graduated from Rift Valley Academy, uh, which, is a, uh, which is an MK school there, uh, and, and, then, and at that point we had uh, two children in college, uh, I had to move back uh, because I realized uh, college is not free in the U.S. for some reason. Uh, so I had to get a real job in a sense. Uh, and then uh, I, I landed actually at University of Pittsburgh uh, where I became a professor of medicine there and continued to teach these courses. And uh, just a couple of years ago, actually, I was recruited to the NIH, uh, and I'm now the medical, I'm the director of, uh, of medical education there, and also the uh, head of global critical care, where I'm uh, hoping to continue the work that I've been doing in Kajabi, uh, but through uh, your tax dollars. Uh, <laughs> so that's my story in brief, so that you, uh, you know who I am. But all of that is to say is uh, my, you know, most of my career has been in medical education. Uh, these are some pictures of some of the students and the residents and fellows that I have trained. Uh, here are some pictures from Georgetown, from Hospital Center, and then from, from University of Pittsburgh. But essentially, I did the exact same work uh, in Kenya, where I work with, uh, with folks in, in, uh, you know, who are family medicine residents in, in a master's program, and I taught them actually biostatistics and research methodology. Uh, this is in, in, um, in, a, in a different country where I'm teaching them cardiology, uh, and then uh, at Kajabi Hospital itself doing rounds, and also teaching uh, you know, through lectures. Now, what I, uh, I'm also showing you these pictures uh, because I really, really, really love what I do. Uh, and, um, and you, know, you know, I often say, uh, don't tell my boss, but even if he didn't pay me, I would still do what I would do. Okay? So don't tell him, but, but I, I want you to know that I really, really love uh, what I do because I find it incredibly rewarding to be uh, making a difference in a trainee's life uh, and being able to impact them, uh, even, even, even be a source of encouragement. Uh, and, and I think it's actually a perfect uh, um, um, career path, actually, for medical missions, because a lot of what happens, if you don't know, in medical missions is through education. Now... So, so why medical education? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift very quickly into the global health setting and the work that we were doing in, in Kajabi. But I want to start with actually just medical education in general as to why I'm passionate about medical education. So I'm going to start with a very important question, especially those of you who raised your hand to say you're in training. So could you raise your hand one more time if you're in training? Okay, so it's roughly about half of you here. Um, so I'd like you to now raise your hand if you want to be incompetent at the end of your training, okay? So raise your hand if you want to be incompetent at the end of training, okay? Now, if you look around, uh, no one's raising their hand. Why is that? Well, I mean, obviously, we want to be good doctors or dentists or pharmacists or nurses, right? So that's kind of a dumb question. But the reason why I start out with this question um, is because it turns out, uh, according to research, there is actually a significant room for improvement when it comes to medical education. So what do I mean? I'm, I'm going to give you just a sample. 
It was actually a pretty classic study by McLean. Uh, uh, it was in, in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine in 2003. It's actually a study of actual patient charts. So 6,700 real patient charts where they went through them one by one and they asked what kind of problems do these real patients have? What did they present to their doctors? Okay? So for example, let's say they had a myocardial infarction. Then they would say, okay, well, what does current science say in terms of how they should be treated? So one common thing, as you know, is if you have an acute MI, uh, and post-MI, you should be given a very inexpensive drug like aspirin. Okay? Well, it's very well known by this point. It's not some new information. It's incredibly inexpensive, uh, so it doesn't cost that much money to do this. It's widely available. You don't have to have some specialized, you know, cardiac catheterization center to, to deliver this effective practice. Uh, and, th- and so they just want to know, okay, how often is the correct thing being done for a particular condition? So they went to the trouble of excluding people who had some contraindications to aspirin. Let's say they were allergic to it, which shouldn't be that common, but maybe they had a, uh, a peptic ulcer disorder, etc. So they got rid of people who shouldn't be on it. And then they said, okay, of the people who had MI who should be on it, what percentage of people got it? Well, uh, you know, this is 2003, okay, but it was actually around 50%. Okay? And these are real patients in the state of North Carolina, okay, and so, so if you're a, a, uh, a glasses-half-full kind of person, that could be encouraging. But, but if you're a patient or a family member of a, uh, of a patient, you should be concerned because there is substantial room for improvement. So not only do they look at aspirin and MI, though, they actually looked at all, all sorts of things. You know, they looked at, uh, I think, over 100 different interventions, and their overall... Uh, rate of physicians doing the right thing was actually only about half, 55%. Okay? So I, I throw that out there for those of you who are training. Okay? Be careful that you end up on the right half of this chart. Okay? It's not automatic. I'll give you a different example because I want to pick on my own group, which are the ICU doctors. Okay? Uh, this is ability to recognize... Uh, uh, mechanical ventilation problems. Okay, it's a very important skill. These are often life-threatening if you don't recognize, you know, uh, adverse settings. Again, these are ten university physicians, not trainees, but fully trained ICU doctors. They were asked to analyze these waveforms, and again, their rate of correct recognition was only 44 percent. Okay, uh, something somewhat different. Uh, patients with hyponatremia, again, a very common condition. Uh, 121 patients with hyponatremia where experts went over to see if they had the correct diagnosis. Again, 43%. Okay? So about half the time your patients may be getting the correct care. The other half the time they may not be. Okay? So if you weren't aware of it before, this should, you know, this should wake you up as to why medical education is important and maybe why medical education needs to change. So, um, so what I often tell people is going through a rotation does not equal competence. Okay? I think the assumption is that if, you know, as a medical student, you go through medicine, surgery, and family medicine, etc., in the end, you're competent. Uh, you certainly think that when you're a resident or a fellow, uh, and, 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 uh, and, but it's not automatic. And also, experience does not equal competence. 
In fact, older you are, if anything, if you look at the data, it suggests that actually you lose your skills rather than actually getting better at it. Now, you do get better at some things like judgment and wisdom. I'm not negating that. But, but in terms of, uh, uh, of, of certain skills and the latest knowledge, that is not the case. And passing your boards does not equal uh, expertise. Okay? So be very careful. Um, and, and I think medical education, even in this country, uh, you know, should be uh, uh, rethought. So global health-wise, though, uh, overseas. If you are, uh, if you've not seen this graph before, I, I, I encourage my students to actually tattoo this in their brain somewhere. Uh, and, and, and I think uh, this is a very relevant graph for uh, you know, for this audience. Um, and you know, and, and, and this is a classic paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, uh, on the x-axis is the number of doctors, nurses, midwives per 1,000 people. So it's the supply of clinicians on the x-axis. And the y-axis is the uh, uh, disability-adjusted life years. In other words, that's the loss of human life and, uh, and also productive life, if you will. So if you look over here, here is Europe and the Americas. Uh, it's obviously uh, a huge amount of supply of doctors, nurses, midwives, but relatively low on the scale of, uh, of, of suffering. And then way over here uh, on the left and on top, uh, this is sub-Saharan Africa, where you have the fewest number of doctors, uh, nurses, and midwives, but the greatest amount of suffering in here. Uh, so I know this is something that everyone here uh, knows about, and that's in part why you're here. Uh, but, but again, I think this is really important to appreciate. The size of the bubbles represents the percent of the world's doctors, nurses, and midwives that are concentrated in these regions. So, said a little bit differently, uh, the physicians uh, per 100,000 people in the U.S. is 549. Uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, it's in the single digits of 2 to 5, so not even 1% of the U.S. supply. Again, I know all of you know this, but just a good reminder of why uh, medical missions uh, is important. I like this map uh, also because this is a, uh, a map from the, like from the U.K., that's, that's uh, displaying the size of the different regions of the world according to physician supply. Okay? So as you can see, much of North America, uh, Europe, and parts of Asia are rather obese because we have so many doctors and nurses and so forth. And then much of the southern hemisphere, uh, especially Africa, Latin America, is very emaciated. Um, so uh, I think one potential implication for you is, you know, when you're faced with this kind of shortage that you all know about, you know, one thing is you can go and practice uh, and you can serve, which is obviously very much needed, and I'm glad you're here. Um, but uh, even better is to actually be involved in medical education where you're teaching the nationals. Okay? That way, you know, if you have to leave after 10 years, uh, there's somebody who's propagating the work, and then they can, te they can teach other people. Um, now... You know, there's different kinds of healthcare. Obviously, there's public health, there's primary care, there's critical care, uh, and and you know, a lot of people have argued, well, you know, why critical care? I and mean, it's very expensive, and you know, it's very complicated. So why don't we concentrate on vaccinating children and also primary care? And I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think I think you know, you know, you know, certainly we need to vaccinate kids. We need to do things that are cost efficient. However, I, you know, I think especially in, in the current age for many of the global health settings, it's not really a true dichotomy anymore. 
it's not it's not either or. You can actually do both, and you need to do both. And at least uh, you know one piece of argument that can be made is from the World Bank in 2006, where they estimate that in low and middle income countries, uh, emergency care and critical care has the potential to impact almost half of the deaths that occur and about a third of the disabilities that occur. So again, you know, if you want to, if you're a primary care doctor, that's wonderful, and and we and we want you to serve overseas and to help out, and we certainly do want to do public health measures. Uh, but if you have an interest in critical care, uh, either from an uh, emergency medicine point of view, a surgical point of view, or a medicine point of view, there is uh, a tremendous opportunity and, uh, and room for you to contribute as well. So, um, um, you know. When I returned from Kenya and I worked uh, on faculty at University of Pittsburgh, uh, you know, one of the most common things they asked me was, you know, you know, you know, uh, why did you go there and what were you doing? Well, one way to answer that was to just simply show them this chart here, where this is Kenya with 53 million people, 150 ICU beds in, in, in the entire country. Uh, in the U.S., there is 328 million people, but as you can see, 94,837 ICU beds. Uh, we had five of the 150 ICU beds at Kajabi, um, and there were 12 critical care physicians by the time I uh, by the time I left. But when I joined the staff at University of Pittsburgh, there were 150 ICU beds in one building. Uh, you know, which, you know, again, is not a surprise to any of you who are in training at your mega hospital centers. And we had 186 critical, uh, critical care physicians just in my own department, uh, let alone a country of uh, 53 million people. So I think, you know, that discrepancy is huge and the needs are, uh, are tremendous. Um, and so, um, so one word of encouragement uh, that I often give people is that, you know, you know, I think the old paradigm for being a missionary was certainly to be a general surgeon or a family medicine doctor. And I think that's very much true. And so if you have those passions, obviously that is wonderful and that is very, very appropriate. So I would encourage uh, uh, people like that. However, if your passion is more narrower and you have a passion for, you know, urology or ENT or, or, or something else, actually there's room for you here because now the world is changing, uh, medicine is changing, and the needs are changing. And so, uh, so there might be a reason why God is having you interested in that particular field of yours. So, uh, so I would encourage you to, to actually pursue your passions. So... Um, our work actually uh, uh, involved lots of different things, but, 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 uh, but the one program that, that uh, um, is actually directly impacted uh, for critical care was the work that we did with clinical officers. Uh, and so I need to explain what clinical officers are for those of you who might not be familiar. So at least in our part of, of uh, East Africa, the clinical officers are not nurses, not doctors, but the closest thing might be physician assistants. So they go to their own training school for two years. They do an internship for a year in medicine, surgery, peds, OB, and then they go and practice, uh, sometimes under the supervision uh, of a physician, but oftentimes alone, and they, and they basically staff uh, outpatient clinics and sometimes hospitals. But, um, so those are the people that we concentrated on. So as far as critical care, there is a model that, if you didn't know, uh, that actually exists out of Ethiopia. There's a two-year pulmonary critical care medicine fellowship program in Addis. It was actually started in, in collaboration with some folks um, uh, uh, from the U.S., actually, uh, and it's still ongoing, and, and they're doing very valuable work, but they're training you know, one or two physicians at a time. Uh, 
but we chose to train in Kenya uh, clinical officers because the ratio of clinical officers to physician is actually four to one. So there's a, you know, there's a relative abundance of clinical officers, and we felt that, you know, that we needed more surgeons and we needed more uh, internists and family medicine doctors. Uh, so uh, we initially wanted to kind of take from that, uh, that pool. So, it's, so instead, uh, we worked on clinical officers, uh, uh, you know, because of their relative abundance. And then, you know, like many of them were like super talented, super bright people, but actually lacked opportunity because, because beyond their level of training, there was really nowhere to advance beyond that. So, so many of them really relished the opportunity. Um, so, uh, so we actually created a group called ECHO Officers. It's E-C-C-C-O. It's Emergency Medicine. So E, and then critical care, and then clinical officers. So ECHO training program. And uh, uh, we uh, you know, uh, wrote about some of this work in some journals. Um, and uh, this is a picture of our first graduating class in 2015. Uh, actually, my wife uh, brought over all these uh, um, uh, cap and gowns, and we had a huge celebration when our first class uh, graduated. So um, uh, why Kajabi? You know, we, we have uh, uh, some people in the audience who know Kajabi very well, but if you didn't know, it's, it, it's already a center of training. It's had a you know, long history of, uh, of training um, physicians and nurses already. This is just an example from uh, the pediatric surgery program where you see um, these different surgeons that were trained at Kajabi. But as you can see, they didn't only come from Kajabi, but they came from all different parts of Africa where they come to Kajabi to train, and then they went back to their host countries or their, uh, their own countries uh, to serve. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, and now there are residency programs in family medicine, surgery, orthopedics, neurosurgery, uh, pediatric surgery. Uh, there's always been an uh, internship program for medical officers, which is a PGY-1 level training after medical school. And then, you know, we now have the ECHO program that I just mentioned, but a pediatric uh, equivalent of the ECHO program started in 29, uh, I'm sorry, in 2020. Uh, and then there's been a long history of training nurse uh, anesthetists. So, uh, so there's actually been a great long relationship with Vanderbilt University, as an example, among many other institutions. This is Dr. Mark Newton, uh, who's an anesthesiologist, uh, who's actually now back at Vanderbilt, I think, but uh, he was at Kajabi um, you know, working on this relationship and, uh, and, and have trained um, uh, a, a lot of nurse anesthetists. Um, Dr. Tarpley, uh, his wife is in the, uh, is in the background, but he's a, he's a surgeon who's also contributed uh, from Vanderbilt as well. So, uh, so this is a curriculum uh, that was used for our echo officers. It includes uh, ultrasound of the cardiac, uh, you know, um, trauma, uh, vascular ultrasound, arterial blood gas analysis, intubations and airway management, uh, and mechanical ventilation, non-invasive ventilation, and so forth. So all the standard things that, that, that you would want them to have in terms of emergency medicine skills and critical care skills, all the stuff like ACLS, ATLS, and so forth. Um, and uh, because Google Drive is free. Uh, we use Google Drive as a source of the curriculum. So here's an example of the reading assignments for the ICU curriculum for our trainees. Uh, and there are various topics here. Yeah, here's the one that's circled for sepsis. And they are organized uh, intentionally with a summary that the trainees have to read uh, and then questions for them to answer. And then we have a flipped classroom approach 
where they're doing uh, interactive uh, problem-solving exercises to demonstrate their under- understanding. Um, a lot of the things that were required, you know, I, I think if you worked overseas, you would uh, appreciate this, of course, but in case you weren't aware, is beyond just teaching. So here's an example of, of some, uh, some of the things that really changed uh, how we taught and how effective things were was I got a small donation to, to buy this dish, and what we did with it was actually provide Wi-Fi access. Uh, and then we had donors who provided actually tablets for them to read the Google Drive, uh, you know, documents uh, that are all PDF, uh, watch videos and stuff like that as, as needed. So this is my cla- uh, this is my old uh, living room where the students are gathered and they're using the Wi-Fi that's at the house to, to access the reading. Uh, and then here is in, in our patio where the uh, where they're gathered to listen to a lecture from Boston uh, that's being uh, uh, that's being. Uh, Streamed in. Um, uh, the the purpose of the Echo program is not only medical education, but is to actually have a vision uh, for impacting rest of Africa and other underserved areas. So it might be hard for you to appreciate, but we're all standing in the shape of an arrow, uh, and and it's because we want uh, like arrows to be sent uh, and to have an impact where we land. Um, and so a lot of this has to do with working in even less uh, uh, resource places than Kajabi because, relatively speaking, Kajabi is like the Mayo Clinic of, uh, of Kenya. Um, and, uh, and this young woman, uh, um, her name is Hannah, uh, but, but uh, on, on a... Uh, on a uh, on a recent trip, uh, you know, with me to the Horn of Africa, uh, you know, it was one of her first, uh, it was her first uh, airplane ride uh, and her first trip out of the country uh, when, when we were working there. And, and on our return trip, you know, one of the things that really uh, touched my heart was that, you know, uh, she told me that she never realized that she could be a blessing to other people. Uh, and, uh, and for her, it was a paradigm-shifting um, moment to realize that, that it's not just, you know, in her words, it's not just the white people uh, that needs to serve in Africa, but, but it's something that, that she really felt her passion for. So this is us celebrating, actually, the graduation. We took them on a whitewater rafting trip. Uh, it was a fabulous time. Uh, most of these people, by the way, have never swam in their lives. Uh, and then we threw them into a whitewater uh, uh, rafting boat. So it was a fun experience in, uh, in many ways. But, uh, but more important milestones are is that this program was recognized by the, by the government of Kenya uh, just uh, uh, one year after graduation. And if you're familiar with the bureaucracy uh, in some of these uh, settings, you know, this in itself is a miracle that, that, that they would actually grant full uh, uh, licensure and, and approval in such a short time. Um, these are currently where there are echo officers serve. Uh, so, uh, so Kajabi's right around here, but they serve uh, not only in the capital region, but they serve in all the remote places. Uh, I think this might be Tenmec Hospital, uh, uh, where um, uh, where actually echo officers now work routinely in the emergency room and in the ICUs. Um, and uh, we're currently graduating about 12 echo officers per year at Kajabi Hospital. Uh, but uh, some of our old graduates have gone on to start new schools of, uh, in the same manner. And, uh, and, uh, and one example of that is a, is a Kenyan medical training college in Nairobi uh, that has a university affiliation. And they now train 14 people per year. And our, our estimate is that we expect to have graduated 250 uh, ECHO officers by year uh, uh, 
2030. So we're very proud of this, and we're very excited, and we're very thankful to God for this. Um, and as I mentioned, in 2020, because of the success of the ECHO program, now there's a pediatric equivalent you know, with very similar goals and ideas um, at Kajabi. So here's a picture of our graduating class. There are seven of them here in 2016. Uh, one of them is a gentleman named Samuel here that you see pictured here. I think he's shaking my hand. But uh, And then uh, this is a picture of the ECHO conference. These are all the graduates that come together annually now for, for, for continuing education. And as you can see, you know the group has really expanded and multiplied. And, uh, and probably one of the, uh, you know, uh, one of the most satisfying things is this is actually Samuel now, who's now on faculty, and he's the one who's actually teaching. So it is mostly led by ECHO graduates, so non-physicians are the leaders. There is still oversight and some input from, you know, like from, like from the physicians, but it has really become independent uh, uh, from physicians. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about medical education in a slightly different context, and that is actually research. So if you haven't seen this paper before, this is actually a pretty uh, often discussed article in, in Global Health. This is a paper by Raman in, in 2003 where they're cataloging where does the clinical literature in the world come from um, for, uh, you know, that's relevant for, um, for doctors and patient care. So I know, I know this is kind of small and hard to read. What it basically says is that 45% of the world literature comes from North America. So that's probably not surprising to you. Another 35% comes from Europe. But if you look at the top, less than 1% comes from Africa. And that is a huge problem. Uh, because you have you know, uh, uh, over a billion people in the continent of Africa... And the clinical data and research that we produce may or may not be relevant to their setting or their background. So I'll I'll give you one example, uh, if you weren't um, uh, aware of this. This has to do with a common issue of sepsis. So here's a paper by uh, by Dr. Rivers. Uh, It was a very well-known article at the time. It was published in in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. And his paper was concentrating on adults in the U.S. Uh, as far as patients with sepsis were critically ill. And the conclusion that he offered from the paper was that you should resuscitate people very aggressively. Okay? Well, it, it made some sense, and so this took off, and the entire uh, world uh, took this up as the, something that's absolutely necessary. And actually, if you didn't know, uh, the Americans and some Europeans actually became quite bossy about this. So where, where they took this principle and says, you need to do this in Africa. Okay? Uh, and they would shame you, essentially, by saying, well, you poor country, you don't have the resources, we feel bad for you, but you should be doing this. Well, here, here's a, a different paper uh, called the FEAST trial, also in the New England Journal of Medicine, 10 years later in 2011. This was done among African children. And this paper actually showed the exact opposite. It says if you resuscitate people aggressively, you're going to increase their mortality. Okay? Now, let's compare some of the differences between these studies briefly. Um, this has one good part of it, in that the allocation was done by sealed opaque envelopes. But the items in red are sort of concerning methodologies. It was not a registered study. It only had 263 patients. It was done at a single center in Detroit, and there was a strong conflict of interest. In other words, the the authors were paid by uh, a company that made a particular device that that made this uh, resuscitation strategy. 
In contrast, uh, this paper 10 years later in African children uh, was also had a strong uh, uh, application consumer of sealed or packed envelopes, but this was registered. It was 3,100 patients. It was a multi-center study in, um, in multiple countries in East Africa, and there was no conflict of interest. So clearly this was a much uh, better quality paper, um, and so it cast doubt on this idea of resuscitating aggressively. But as you can imagine, this was very controversial because a lot of people in the U.S. say, well, you know, this is Africa, this is children, you know, this doesn't apply to us, so you should still resuscitate aggressively. Well, to make the long story short, a few more years later, in part because of the controversy of the FEAST trial, uh, you know, showing higher mortality, multiple trials were done internationally. One of them is called the PROCESS trial, and the New England Journal of Medicine, in, in this case, was done among U.S. adults again. And they found a, uh, a very, very well-done study, actually almost flawless kind of study, um, and they found no difference in mortality. Okay? Uh, and, then, uh, and, then, um, and then folks from Vanderbilt uh, actually did a study uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in Zambia, among adults in 2017. And this was sort of a, meaty, uh, a, sort of a medium, uh, medium quality in that they had some strong uh, method, uh, methodologies, but it was, a, it was a limited study of only 200 patients, and it was also at a single center. Uh, but they again found higher mortality uh, with aggressive resuscitation in this population. So all of this is to say that the old idea that you could do research in the U.S. and simply just plop them over in, in, in another setting and then have them do it automatically, where we are the experts and we will tell you how, you know, how to do this, Maybe you know, maybe uh, maybe hubris at best, uh, and uh, and could potentially be lethal. Um, so um, so I think this has taught us a lot that that I think if possible we want to do number one higher quality trials, right? So you know you know these these two in the middle are the highest quality, um, and you don't want to be moved by sort of the poor methodologic papers uh, that may be influential. Um, prematurely, but more importantly for our context is we want to generate data that is relevant to the people that we're serving. So, uh, so this may be a, st uh, a strange comment coming from a missions conference, but actually uh, it, it might have potential implication for you, is that for all the classes you have to take on biostatistics, or if you're in a research lab or you're forced to do a scholarly project as part of your residency or fellowship, it may actually not be just a waste of time. It may actually be one of the most important contributing skills you can do as a medical missionary. Um, my time in Africa, I taught you know, blood gases, I taught mechanical ventilation, I taught all kinds of things. But actually one skill that I was routinely asked to do over and over and over again was actually in biostatistics and research methodology. And it's not something that I would expect it would have been the case, but, uh, but, it, but it really was. So I would encourage you to really take those courses and those opportunities uh, seriously and actually get involved in research. So uh, one side point here is uh, actually one of the courses that I teach is, uh, is actually called Scientific Literacy and Numeracy. Uh, and, um, and, you know, uh, I asked you to raise your hand if you, uh, you know, if you wanted to be incompetent and nobody raised their hand. So I'm going to ask you similar questions. I'd like you to raise your hand if you're illiterate. Uh, again, I suspect no one's going to raise their hand. But now I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you are innumerate. Uh, and some of you are going to look at me like, what, what does that mean even? Well, the word numeracy is the same idea as the word literacy. Okay. So literacy obviously means you can read and write, you know, like in our case, the 
English language, and everybody is able to do that. Uh, numeracy is a similar concept, but your ability to understand mathematical concepts. But we're not talking about fancy stuff like calculus and, you know, and, uh, and things like that. We're talking simple things, the stuff that you need as physicians, stuff like tables, uh, basic statistical concepts, uh, understanding what a, what a Kaplan-Meier curve is, and things of that nature. Well, the reason I bring this up is because it turns out, according to research, most physicians are not illiterate, but they are innumerate. And, and, and that casts a tremendous amount of doubt in our expertise as physicians. That is, if you cannot read and understand the scientific literature, how could you possibly be an expert on, in your field? And this is really a serious matter for some of us. So, uh, so here's an example. Here's a classic study by Windisch. Uh, this, is a, this is a paper uh, looking at 277 residents in internal medicine residency programs in the state of Connecticut. So this includes places like University of Connecticut, Yale University, and a bunch of other programs like that. Uh, and, they, and what they did in this study was they looked at uh, all of the articles, 239 articles that were published in this quarter of 2005. So this is January through March. In those three months that were published in these journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, BMJ, etc. So the major journals that people read. And they said, what are the common numeracy concepts, common statistical concepts that are used in these papers? And they cataloged them, and they picked the most frequently use ideas, and they tested their internal medicine resident to see if they understood it. Okay? What do you think happened? What do you think they found? Okay? So here's what they found. I'll give you a couple of sampling. Here is their ability to interpret the meaning of the 95% confidence interval. Second was, as I mentioned, the interpret what a Kaplan-Meier curve is saying. Well, it's 12% and 10%. Okay. Now, this is the state of Connecticut. This is internal medicine. Maybe you're in a different residency, different state. Maybe, maybe you would know more, but, 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 but our research shows that, that, that really physicians are innumerate. Okay. And that's a problem for this society in general as physicians, but it's also a problem overseas because you have to make very, very important decisions about how to spend money, uh, uh, money wisely, and... Uh, and how to make the best of the resources that you have. Um, so uh, another potential implication for you is, you, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say to be a good uh, medical missionary, uh, you probably, you know, didn't hear that you should be a biostatistician. Okay? But you might think about a more serious course and more serious training so that you understand what you're reading and develop expertise uh, in, in this so that you could learn it for yourself. But also, it's an incredibly important skill for you to teach to the people that, you could, that you'll be training one day in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia or wherever. So uh, as I wrap up, uh, I want to uh, share with you about one other thing is that uh, we are... Um, uh, continuing our work uh, in Kajabi, Kenya, and we are actually, uh, uh, we just started this group called the Global Critical Care Collaboration, or GC3 uh, for short. And what it is, is we have six of the hospitals and universities in black uh, that are well resourced that is partnering with Kajabi Hospital. So, Kajabi Hospital. Uh, is a well-resourced hospital by some African standards, but 
but certainly uh, uh, not so by the others. And then among the six partner hospitals, one of them is, is Aga Khan University Hospital in Nairobi, which if you, if you don't know, it's like their premier research institution. It is very, very well resourced, uh, and they have a lot of equipment, and actually you know, they have better stuff than, than some U.S. hospitals. Uh, but the rest are in the U.S., uh, so it includes uh, um, Beth Israel at Harvard Medical School, uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, NIH, which is, which is where I currently am, and then University of Pittsburgh, where I used to be, and then Texas Children's at Baylor. So, and here are some of the people who are involved, um, and, and, and I think some of you may know some of these people. But well, the bottom line is we have both African and North American um, uh, university hospitals that are partnering with Kajabi Hospital for critical care. What are we doing? Well, our initial steps are to actually send uh, our uh, faculty from these hospitals uh, uh, in black to Kajabi Hospital to help on a regular basis. Uh, and then we're also be, going to be sending our fellows in training to these hospitals. Um, and the idea is that, uh, you know, among the six institutions, we hope to provide a minimum of six months of coverage of ICU care at Kajabi Hospital. And what will we be doing? Well, the fellows will be doing their usual clinical work, uh, taking care of sick patients, but also we'll be doing a lot of teaching. So we're going to put on courses in ultrasound, mechanical ventilation, intubations, etc., all the things that are necessary. But, but, but beyond the patient care and, and coordinated education, uh, we're also going to be fundraising for, uh, for building resources, equipment. Uh, but uh, I think the thing that we're most exci excited about is we're going to be building a research capacity uh, for, uh, uh, for Kajabi. What we're doing is when our fellows go, they're going to spend a month, they're going to free up an African national physician so that they will have protected time to take courses, and then they'll be doing mentor research with one of us, uh, and then we'll be working as partners to develop a database and to ask important research questions uh, that are relevant for sub-Saharan Africa. So in other words, we're trying to protect the Kenyan national physician's time, much in the same way the academic model is that, you know, if you work for a university, you know, you have clinical duties, but you have time protected for scholarly activities, for research, education, and so forth. There really is not a similar system like that at Kajabi or in most places in sub-Saharan Africa. So we're trying to create an academic environment where, where, where bright Kenyan nationals who have the desire can, uh, can benefit from protected time by our collaboration and then work on acquiring the skills for research. So that's what we're really excited about. Um, and I'm going to end with this, uh, uh, with this caution. Um, I don't know if, uh, if anybody recognizes that photograph. Anybody knows that picture? I think I heard the answer somewhere, yeah? Okay, so there's a gentleman who's been to Kenya multiple times, and uh, this is uh, uh, Jomo Kenyatta, and if you don't know, he's the first president of Kenya after Kenya got its independence from Britain. And he actually has a haunting quote, uh, and, uh, and some of you may be familiar with this, but if you're not, in my opinion, this is something that every person who wants to be a missionary of any type, uh, including medical missions, you should at least be aware of his quote as a, as a time to pause and think about. This is what he said. He says, when the missionaries arrived, the Africans had the land and the missionaries had the Bible. They taught us how to pray with our eyes closed. Uh, when we opened them, they had the land and we had the Bible. 
It's a pretty scathing comment. And, you know, unfortunately, I wish this wasn't true, uh, uh, but there is a certain amount of truth in this. That is, uh, when we're approaching uh, cross-cultural missions of this nature, obviously we, we're doing a lot of good uh, and we're, we mean well. But there's also a lot of unintended harm that's been occurring. And we need to approach this in a thoughtful, uh, careful way. Um, here's a paper in Global Health uh, by Grayson. They talked about the benefits of short-term mission in medicine. So these are residents you know, or, uh, or, or, uh, or doctors who volunteer for a few weeks or a month. And they note you know, many important benefits for high-income country participants and in institutions where you're increasing new knowledge and skills that you didn't have before until you went to that mission trip. You learn uh, uh, more about cost-effectiveness by going into that hospital. You, you gain a deeper appreciation of determinants of health as you, as you realize what makes them sick might be the water, uh, that kind of stuff. And then cultural sensitivity uh, gets better. You gain uh, you know, greater competence with cultural issues. And then many people who return from a foreign trip actually gain uh, greater appreciation for the opportunities in, you know, domestically that you can make a difference in your own city. So all these are wonderful, positive things, and they document these things. But when they, uh, oh, and then, and then for institutions that allow, let's say, residents to go, uh, they actually find that it boosts uh, recruitment, which makes sense because, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't know of a single internal medicine or surgery program that does not have a global health program. Uh, because if you didn't offer one these days, you would be considered such a backward program. No young person would want to apply, even if you were not interested in global health. It's sort of par for what what people expect. So it helps with recruitment. Certain hospitals enjoy sort of that nice image that you create by doing global health work, and some people take uh, advantage of that. So there are clearly benefits to high-income countries, some more pure, some a little bit less, uh, less pure and more of an ulterior motive. But the part that is kind of disturbing is that when they try to look for uh, the benefits to the host institution, uh, either you know, for the patients, they had a much harder time figuring out what are the actual real benefits to uh, the people that they're trying to serve. And in some cases, what they find is actually harm because of surgery done improperly or lack of follow-up care and so forth. So there's a word of caution here. Um, um, This article talks, uh, it's actually a systematic review about global health electives that residents and students go on, and they talk about some of the harms, and and it includes, uh, let's say, um, doctors who are practicing outside of their scope of competence. Maybe an intern is having to do obstetrics uh, and, and things like that. Uh, they talk about resource drainage, that, that when you do uh, medical work, you, know, uh, uh, you often need a translator, you need a cultural guy, you need someone to kind of host you through this, you know, this very different institution and culture. But that requires one of their people to sacrifice their time. Uh, you know, obviously, when you're in a cross-cultural setting, there's going to be a lot of uh, you know, um, um, mistakes that are made. Uh, and then there's concern about things like perpetuation of neocolonialism, you know, white saviorism, uh, and even racism. And then the issues of power imbalance when you come as a foreigner uh, to a poorer country. 
and then uh, how you coming as a physician or a nurse or whatever, you may displace a national from their job because you're there, and then, uh, and then that actually keeps them from gaining employment. So there are many harms uh, you know, that are you know, uh, not intentional, uh, but uh, things that may be occurring that we need to be very, very careful about. Um, along this light, if you haven't read this book before, I, you know, um, I would encourage you to read this, uh, this book. It's called Imperial Twilight. It's a history book. It has, it has nothing to do directly with medicine and not, nothing to do directly with missions even. But it's actually the story of the opium war between uh, Great Britain and China. And, uh, and a section of this book, this was something that I read and I cannot forget, but, but this is in the height of the war where the, where the Jap- uh, well, Japanese, the British ships were actually you know, launching attacks in China, forcing Chinese people to consume opium. You know, I mean, you know, you know the, the, the Great British Empire was actually a drug pusher to this uh, nation who didn't want it. But the people who were complicit, who were working on the ships, translating and allowing this to happen, were actually missionaries. And I was astounded uh, how they could um, uh, be complicit in, in, in that kind of affair. So, um, so I just again mentioned this, that, that there's a great deal of opportunity there. There's a great deal of... Um, uh, great things that can happen through medical education in particular, uh, but there also needs to be uh, approached very cautiously. Um, I think this is my last slide, but, uh, but so I would invite you, but cautiously invite you to share the privilege of, of, of sharing your skills in medicine, uh, and especially through medical education, to make an impact for God's kingdom. Uh, here's a quote from a New Yorker uh, article. Uh, it's talking actually about the plague of the Cyprian, not the current pandemic, uh, but, it, but it actually has a, 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 a very good quote in my opinion. It talks about how Christianity grew, and it says that Christianity grew as a religion in part because so many saw followers of Jesus ministering to the sick and endangering their own lives to be with the dying. And those Christians were, were providing medical care and companionship, not insisting on their right to carry on with life as usual. And so I want to encourage you in this noble journey, uh, one that is very much um, you know, at the heart of uh, where I believe uh, um, uh, uh, God is at, and it's, uh, it's very much uh, at the center of our faith. So thank you for being interested. Thank you for coming to the conference. And I hope you will... Uh, You'll come up and ask questions. I think we, I think we should have about 10 minutes left. Um, these are some of our of our collaborators at Kajabi and also with the GC3 that are listed there. Um, and um, that's my email up there if you want to contact me about anything. But I'm happy to open up uh, the rest of the time for any comments or questions. Not qualified to answer that question, uh, but but I will. 
use it as a springboard to talk about something slightly different, you know, you know, you know which is, uh, which I think, you know, like places like Kajabi and, and many other teaching institutions around, you know, around the world uh, that are Christian-based, I think much of their effort has been to try to train the nationals in their national country because uh, many of the models where they encourage them to come and study in the U.K. or, or, or the U.S., they, generally speaking, don't go back to their own, own yeah. country. So it contributes to brain drain. So, so a lot of the model there is instead of bringing residents to the U.S. to train, you know, it probably makes more sense to send faculty from the U.S. to go there and to help train. Yes. Yeah, I think everybody was able to hear her, uh, so, so I won't repeat it, but, but thank you for that question. That's an excellent question. So uh, I mean, there's several different dimensions I, I'll try to comment on because I think that, that, that's such an important question. I mean, number one, uh, you know, you gave examples of daily chest x-rays and daily blood gases. Actually, evidence already shows that's not necessary, even in the U.S., although it is commonly done. So we're wasting a lot of money in the U.S., so we're not being good stewards of it anyway. So, so, so that's number one. Uh, and, and you're right, you know, actually Kajabi, Tenwick, and several hospitals like that, they're very well resourced by sub-Saharan African standards, but there's many more, you know, parts of Africa where, where they can't afford those things. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. And actually, uh, you know, I've had many people come up to me, like, you know, over the last decade or so asking, how do I start an ICU like that, you know, where I am, and, you know, that could be Congo or it could be, you know, you know uh, uh, wherever. But my general response has been, is don't, actually. You don't want an ICU like Kajabi because you're not ready for it. So, that, so you know, just as an example, first thing you want to do, actually the last thing you want to do is buy a ventilator. Okay? First thing you want to do is to train nurses. You don't want an intensivist. Okay? He or she will wreck it. Okay? You find the nurses to do basic, high-level intensive care which is basically vital sign monitoring and just doing very intensive nursing care. And you want to have that core, that culture, and being able to maintain that, uh, that pool of nurses uh, to support whatever work that's already happening. And you don't want to buy expensive equipment at the starting point. Because I know so many examples where they do the opposite and they buy all the equipment. They send, you know, some highly skilled person, uh, uh, you know, from the U.S. And that is at best temporary. 
uh, and then there's no nurses to actually carry on the, you know, on the work. So, so I, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, the idea is never, in my opinion, to start with expensive stuff, but start always with the much more fundamental skills. So just even sense of, you know, like keeping track of vitals, you know, and, and, then, and then having a system where if the heart rate is, is above this, maybe you should call somebody, you know. Some of those things that are kind of intuitively obvious uh, may not be happening culturally in your own institution. Um, and then um, another example I might bring is uh, we have, um, um, I just met this person uh, within this past year. Uh, I don't think she's at the conference, but if you happen to know about her or, or, um, um, or you're, you're excited about this, you should contact a person named Echo Vanderwall, who uh, works in Eswatini, that's that little tiny landlocked country within South Africa. And she weathered the COVID pandemic and saved literally thousands of lives without a ventilator. All of our work was with oxygen, uh, and, the, and the big part of it was actually building an oxygen plant that could generate just liters and liters of oxygen. And, uh, and it's just fantastic, the work that she's done. And she is not even a physician, let alone an intensivist. So. Okay, any other questions? If not, thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to you know, be here for a little longer, and uh, I'm happy to talk to you, so please come on up, but otherwise, have a good afternoon. Oh, actually, uh, one, 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 one piece of self-serving advertisement I was going to do is I shared with you some of the stuff about the Manu Rivers paper and the process papers. If you want to learn more about how to read scientific papers, I'm, I'm doing a session like about half an hour, I think, uh, on evidence-based medicine. Okay. Thank you.